few weeks ago, I discussed prayers of praise and how prayers of praise are used to esteem the name of the Lord, to lift up the name of the Lord higher than everything else that exists. And so we, we looked in the book of Revelation how we will be praising the Lord after he comes back on the new earth. And we want to allow that reality to reach back into the present so that we praise him now and esteem him now and lift him up now that same way. And I mentioned multiple times in that message, the beginning of the Lord's prayer, where Jesus says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So one way that we esteem the Lord, one way that we make the name of the Lord hallowed in this church is to praise him above all else, to have prayers of praise. Today, I want to actually go to the Lord's Prayer. I want us to go to Matthew chapter 6. And I want us to look at the first part of this prayer to see another specific way that Jesus says we are to lift up the name of the Lord. How can we pray in such a way that the name of the Lord is hallowed in this place and in our lives? I, already, I see a bunch of you uh, already flipping on your phones and I hear pages turning, so I'm assuming you're already turning there. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to read just verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to deal with the whole Lord's Prayer this morning. I'm just going to deal with the first three petitions and show how they all come together and relate to one another. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Jesus is saying these words. Pray then... Like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you and I thank you, God, for your willingness to demonstrate to us the manner in which we ought to pray. Thank you that you have given us the great privilege of being able to have your ear. That we can pray and we know that you listen. You know that you long to answer our prayers and to do what is best for us and good for us and ultimately what is greatest for your glory. I pray, Lord, as we look at these words that we just read from the prayer that you have given us as a guide, I pray, O oh Lord, that we would truly be devoted to being disciples who not only pray this prayer, but desire to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there are three petitions that Jesus gives here. And those will be my three main points in a moment. But before we get to that, I want to give you three, three things as a way of introduction as we get into these three petitions. The first is that these clauses that we just read, these Verses 9 and 10. This actually is reminiscent of a Aramaic prayer or doxology that was actually used in the synagogues at the time of Jesus. Let me read you this actual Aramaic. No, I'm not, not going to read it in Aramaic because, you know, I'm going to do it in English. I'm going to give you the translation, but I want you to see. Remember, this was being prayed in the synagogues at the time of Jesus. Tell me if you can see some similarities or some things that are reminiscent of what we just read in verses 9 and 10. 
Here's the translation. Exalted, exalted and hallowed be his great name. In the world which he created according to his will. May he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days. And in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. Praised be to his great name from eternity to eternity and to this. Amen. I hope you see some of the similarities there. So it is very probable that what Jesus has done is he has taken that prayer of doxology that was used in the synagogues and he's basically um, brought it down and, and made it a little bit more concise. He, he has... Um, Use this familiar expression that was used all the time in the synagogues now to help build the first part of this prayer. So that's the first thing I want you to see as a means of introduction. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus says, pray like this. Uh, he does not say, pray these words. Jesus is not saying you have to verbatim pray these exact words and repeat them over and over again. He doesn't say this is exactly what you should pray. He says pray like this. Now it doesn't mean that we can't pray these words verbatim. After all they are the inspired words of God. Nothing wrong with praying these words. But Jesus was not intending for every time we pray to have to pray these exact words. He's using this as a, a guide, a model, a, a, not a set of formal words that are to be repeated, but a, a way that we should pray. These are the things that we should think about. These are the, the structuring of our prayer, as it were. And then third, he says, our Father in heaven. Before he gets to the petitions of the prayer, he is showing us who we're to pray to. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he consistently and simply refers to God as Father. And he teaches his disciples to do the same thing. This is huge. This is huge. There was no thought of this in pagan religions. They did not pray to their gods and call them father. There was no family dynamic to the prayers from the pagans. In fact, the Jews did do it, but it was not commonplace. It wasn't commonplace for them to refer to God as father. Jesus steps on the scene and he calls God my father and then tells his disciples to do the very same thing. Jesus is teaching a new thing to his disciples, a, a familial uh, intimacy with God, a family dynamic. God is your heavenly father. God cares about you. God is intimate with you. Jesus is teaching, as Brother James expressed last week, we have privileged access to God. A God who longs to hear and answer our prayers. God is close to his people and he is intimate with his children. Let me say that again. God is close to his people and he is intimate with his children. It also says though, in heaven. We must never forget 
this phrase in heaven. I believe this speaks to the greatness and the all-powerful nature of God. If Father makes Him imminent with us, then heaven makes Him transcendent. If, if God is close to us and He's near to us, we must, not all, we must always remember that He is also transcendent. He is completely other than he is in heaven. There's this, there is this separation that exists between us and God because He is God and we are not. So we got to hold these two things together here. Jesus is saying, listen, when you pray, hold these two things together. He is your Father. So you come to Him in intimacy and closeness and He cares and He wants to hear and He wants to answer. But never forget, He is God in heaven, all-powerful. And there's a sense in which we must be reverent. And then did you see this little word, our father? When Jesus usually prays, Jesus usually says, my father, my father, my father. But here when he's teaching the disciples to pray, he says, our father, our father in heaven. So I want to speak on this word, our, for a minute. There is a famous older phrase that gained some popularity in Christianity um, in the United States and, and, and in the West, it says the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. It was a phrase that we used, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Now, I know probably what people mean by that. Probably what people mean is God is the one who created us all. And we are all interconnected because we are all human beings. So in our humanity, we are connected and we are connected in our humanity because God created us all. But spiritually speaking, that phrase isn't true. The fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. God is not the spiritual father of all human beings. He is the creator of all human beings, but he is not the Father, the spiritual father of all human beings. I know this to be true because Jesus looked at religious leaders and said, you are of your father, the devil. You are not of God, the father. You are of your father, the devil. Not everyone has God as their spiritual father. Now, they have God as their creator. And because of that role of creator, there is a sense in which God provides and protects for his creation. It reigns on the just and the unjust. But that is different than saying God is my father. God is only the father of those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and therefore have a relationship with him through Jesus And human beings who have done that have been adopted into the family of God and therefore are brothers and sisters. So the reason why I am your brother in Christ has nothing to do, or my, my, your brother at all, has nothing to do with our humanity. It has everything to do with being born again. Being born again is what unites us in brotherhood. Being born again is what brings us together in under the fatherhood of God. So Jesus is saying, our father. He is not saying anybody and everybody can pray this and it's true. He's saying, listen, those 
that put their faith and trust in me, those that follow after me, they are the ones who can pray our Father, and they are the ones who are brought together. William Barclay wrote this about the Lord's Prayer. He says, The Lord's Prayer is not a child's prayer, as it is so often regarded. The Lord's Prayer is not a family prayer, as it is sometimes called. The Lord's Prayer is specifically and definitely stated to be the disciples' prayer. And only on the lips of a disciple has the prayer its full meaning. To put it another way, the Lord's Prayer can only be prayed when the one who prays it knows what he is saying. And he cannot know that until he, entered in, he enters into discipleship. God is our Father, and we are united together in unity to desire and to devote ourselves to these three petitions. Let me repeat that. God is our Father only if we come together and believe that these three petitions are the heartbeat of our lives, that these three petitions are the desire and that we are devoted to living out these petitions. If that is not true, then we are not brothers and sisters and God is not our Father. He is only our Father if that is true of us. So what I want to do is I want us to look at these three petitions and then I want us to see how they fit together. The first, Jesus says, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed literally translates in the Greek as sanctified. Now, when we think of sanctified, usually what comes to mind is we are being made in the image of God. We're being we're becoming more and more holy. We are, uh, our moral imperfections are being done away with and we're, we're becoming more and more moral like Jesus. That's usually what we think of, correct? Isn't that normally where our mind goes when we think of sanctified? Well, that's a problem because that word can't be true of God. God can't be sanctified in that sense. It's not as if God can become more, more moral than he is now or more perfect than he is now. So it, it can't mean that. God can't be sanctified in that sense. Uh, we can't add anything to the greatness of God. This is not a prayer for Jesus is saying, Lord, your name needs to be um, more holy and sanctified. So you need to do better stuff so that it's, it's more, it's better. It's, it's more holy. It's not what Jesus is praying here. So what if we, what if we understand it as the word holy? Some of the translations actually translate it holy. Our Father in heaven Holy be your name. That's how some of the translations actually translates it, holy. But I, I think we need to go a step further than that because you know the demons even regard Jesus as holy, right? In fact, when a demon-possessed person came to Jesus, Jesus was about to cast the demon out and, and the demon began speaking and the demon said to Jesus, I know who you are. You're the holy one of God. So even the demons recognize Jesus as holy or recognize God as holy. So it can't be that we just have this intellectual truth that God is holy. It, it's got to be something a little bit deeper than that. So here's what I think Jesus probably means when he says, hallowed be your name. I think he is talking about the idea of esteeming, valuing, or treasuring. 
God, we want your name esteemed on the earth. We want your name valued on the earth. We want your name treasured on the earth. See, the demons don't do that. They may know in reality that Jesus is the Holy One of God and that God is holy, but they do not value and treasure the name of God. So what I think is happening here with this word hallowed is I think that what we're doing is we're talking about wanting the name of God to be esteemed and valued and treasured and exalted and lifted up on the earth. And it is the name of the Lord that should be hallowed. You know, in, in Hebrew culture, names didn't just mean what the name was, right? It wasn't like um, a, just an identifying marker. Like, who is that guy? Oh, that's John. Who is that guy? Oh, that's Peter. Oh, that's Simon. Names in Hebrew culture um, were more powerful than that. It wasn't just some, what someone was called. It, it spoke to the nature or the character or the personality of the person so far as it is revealed. So when we speak of the name, hallowed be your name, what we're saying is hallowed be the nature and character and personality of God. And those that know God's nature, those that know God's character, love God. It is impossible for you to truly know the character and nature of God and not love him. Did you know that? The two always go together. If, if someone doesn't love God, guess what they don't understand? The true nature and character of God. Because to know the true nature and character of God is to love God. They go together. So, so let's take all of this and put it together here. Hallowed be your name. Here's what we are praying for. God, we are praying that your name, your character... Your nature, who you are, who you are in your being, who you are in, in the way that you demonstrate it into the world. We want that esteemed and valued and loved in this world above everything else. We want the Lord to become the famous one on the earth. The second petition. Your kingdom come. Jesus prays that the Father's kingdom would come. Now, let me make a statement about kingdom. This is just a, a principle uh, uh, that you just need to always remember. Kingdom is always about rule, reign, and authority. Always. When Jesus speaks of kingdom, when Paul speaks of kingdom, when, when the gospels speak of kingdom, it is talking about rule, reign, and authority. So here, Jesus is saying... Father, I want your rule and your reign and your authority of your kingdom to come. Now, this seems weird. Let me tell you why I think it sounds weird. It sounds weird because isn't it already true that even before Jesus came, God was king? Isn't that, wasn't that already true? I mean, Psalm 103 says the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So in the past, there was a sense in which the kingdom already existed and was already ruling. God rules from heaven and has always ruled from heaven. Amen. 
there is also a sense in which the kingdom of God is present. When Jesus shows up on the scene, what does Jesus preach? Repents. The kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand means it's here, it's now, it's with you. So repent. There is a sense in which Jesus brought the rule and authority and reign of God to the earth at his incarnation. That's why when Jesus said, demons out, guess what demons did? They left. They didn't get to put up a fight and argue and, and, and try to, you know, and it was this real hard thing for Jesus to do. No, his authority, the rule and reign of the kingdom of God said to demons out and demons went out. He said to sickness, go. He said to people who were paralyzed, get up, take your mat and walk. He said to dead people, you rise up, wake up. And guess what they did? They got up. Why? Rule, reign, and authority of the kingdom of God. When Jesus said, sins are forgiven, sins were forgiven. Now, the, the religious leaders didn't like that because they're like, well, only God can forgive sins. I wish somebody was there to go, yeah, man, exactly. <laughs> Jesus was able to forgive sins because rule, reign, authority of the kingdom of God. Sins forgiven, demons cast out. Diseases healed. People becoming a part of the kingdom and a new creation, a new way to be human. And they began living it out. And from that day until this day, the kingdom of God has been growing upon the earth. Did you, you know that, right? The kingdom of God is always growing. People will be saved today on the earth. People who were part of the old creation will be born again and made part of the new creation today and will begin to become disciples of Jesus and live out the new way to be human. That will happen today. Kingdom of God growing. Rule and authority of Christ growing. Happens every day. And then those people begin to live out the new creation and the new way to be human in their homes and at their jobs and with their friends. And, and, and all of a sudden now this new creation living begins spreading in places that it wasn't before. So there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is past and there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is present. But there's also a sense in which the kingdom of God is future. The kingdom has been planted by Jesus on the earth. And it is growing, but it is not in full bloom until he comes back. Okay? So it's growing. Jesus plants it. So catch the visual. I'm a, I'm a visual guy, so if this helps you, this helps you. Kingdom of God is in heaven. And God is, it, God is ruling on the earth in his kingdom from heaven. But then what Jesus does is Jesus takes the kingdom of God, which is in heaven, and he brings that rule, authority, and power to the earth now. 
So now the rule and the power isn't just from heaven. Now it's actually on the earth. And God in the flesh is executing the power and the authority and the rule of God on the earth for people to see. And then Jesus leaves. And before you think, oh, the kingdom of God leaves with him. Oh, no, no, because Jesus sends the Holy Spirit as the one who's going to finish the mission of Jesus of pushing forth the new creation, the kingdom of God on the earth. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to finish what he started. And then the kingdom will be in full bloom for everyone to see. So it is past, it is present, and it is future. That's why Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 says, The kingdom of the world, this is after the seventh seal, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. So it is, has been, it is already, and it is not yet. Are you with me? Now, I laid all that out just to ask the question, what does he mean by kingdom come? Right? I mean, if all of this is biblically true, then when Jesus says your kingdom come, what does he mean? Well, here's what I think he means. I think what he means is the kingdom is here now. And what we want is the kingdom of God to continue to come and spread upon the earth. I think that's what he's praying for. This is a prayer for the kingdom that has come to continue to grow and that more and more people recognize and submit to the reign of God so that sin will be done away with, goodness and and beauty will flourish, and it will be all the more glorious the closer Jesus comes to coming back. You with me? I think that's what he means by your kingdom come. We need to pray, God, we want your kingdom to to flourish in such a way on this earth that more and more people see it and submit to your rule, your reign, and your authority. And I think the last petition that I want to look at this morning helps us even more with that second one. Jesus goes on to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I read this and I think it's weird too. Because, isn't it already true that God is sovereignly ruling over the world? Isn't it already true that God ordains all things which come to pass upon the earth? So, if that is already true, then the will of God is already being accomplished upon the earth. The sovereign will of God is being accomplished on the earth every single day. Nothing can thwart it, nothing can mess it up, nothing can hinder it. God's will and purposes get accomplished, period. Then why is Jesus praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If this is something that will be done, then why are we praying for it to be done? You know, Satan can't even do anything without God's um, allowing him to do so, right? Remember Job? I don't think, though, this is the type of will that God is referring to. I don't think God is talking about his sovereign will here. In Scripture, God speaks of his will in two primary ways. He speaks of his will as the sovereign will of God, what we call the decree of God, right? These are the things that will happen upon the earth. That's why we can say all things which come to pass on the earth have been ordained by God. 
They have been decreed by God. That is his sovereign will and they come to pass. But then there is his prescribed will. His prescribed will are his commands, his rules, the things that he tells human beings they're to follow and how they're supposed to live. So I can say the sovereign will of God always comes to pass. Does the prescribed will of God always get obeyed? Of course not. God can give the command. God can give, here's how we should live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the prescribed will of God. Do all human beings do it? No. So the prescribed will of God, those things that God, how he tells us to live, that prescribed will doesn't always get obeyed. The sovereign will of God always happens, but I don't think he's talking about his sovereign will here. I think he's talking about his prescribed will. Here's what he's saying. He is saying, our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and may your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Here's why I think it's talking about the prescribed will, because he mentions as it is in heaven. How is the will of God obeyed in heaven? Who obeys the will of God in heaven? The only people that can. I mean, people that can. The only creatures that can. Angels. Right? Angels are executing everything that God tells them to execute. Everything that God commands they do everything that God instructs they do it and they do it perfectly and so in heaven at the throne room of God there there is nothing that there is no one there is no creature there is no thing that ever doesn't do what God is telling them to do on earth there is and so I believe what Jesus is saying here Lord may we obey your will the way those in heaven obey you The way the angels hear and obey, may your will be accomplished on earth like that. May your rules and guidelines and the way to live, may that be accomplished on the earth the way it is in heaven. May heaven come down to earth in the way we live. May earth become heaven in the way we live. We want more and more of this on earth. So here's the three petitions that Jesus tells us. Pray like this. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now let's piece these all together because I think Jesus has put them together for a reason. Let's work backwards. We are praying that the prescribed will of God may be lived out and obeyed upon the earth by his people. And we want it more and more and more. 
Now, what happens, church? What happens when disciples of Jesus, when Christians begin living out in obedience to the prescribed will of God? What happens with the kingdom? The kingdom becomes more and more evident on the earth. It begins to grow and flourish and bloom. So as the people of God pray that they would obey the will of God, then what happens is the kingdom begins to come in more and more glory upon the earth. And then guess what happens? The name of God gets more and more hallowed. You see? We're praying. I'm praying that Neil Sandlin obeys Jesus. That I love him and obey him and follow him and, and I live out the prescribed will for the new humanity. And as I do that, guess what's going to happen? The kingdom of God is going to flourish in my life. It's going to flourish in my family. It's going to flourish in this church. It's going to flourish all around me because I'm living out the prescribed will of God. I'm living as God intends for the new humanity. And the kingdom of God begins to flourish all around me. And that happens with you when you do the same thing. And then guess what happens? We begin giving testimony to the character and the nature of, of who God is. And people begin to see that. And people begin to see the new creation and the humanity. They, they begin to see people who are loving and living for God. And then what happens is, is that God becomes esteemed and valued, not just in our lives, but through those who get converted, converted to Jesus Christ and who come into the kingdom of God themselves. You see why this is called, why, why William Barclay is exactly right? This is the disciple's prayer. Only a disciple can pray like this. Someone who's not taking God seriously, they can say these words, but they're not praying this prayer. It's a serious prayer. I mean, we are praying, God, work in me in such a way that I'm obedient to you in everything I do. And work in my brothers and sisters in Christ so that they are obedient to you in everything they do. So that your kingdom can flourish and shine and look beautiful and glorious in this world. So that people revere and esteem and treasure your name. Only disciples can pray this prayer. So the question is, are you serious about discipleship so that this prayer can be prayed? Man, we can just... When I was in, in college, my very first game, um, we're at home and, I mean, we're on the road and we, we kneel down to pray. And I was a freshman, so I had never done this before, but all the upperclassmen start... Praying the Lord's Prayer. And I was kind of taken back by it. I thought someone was going to lead us in prayer. That's what I had known. And, and, and yet, they all start saying the Lord's Prayer. And then I got to know a lot of these guys. And I realized that a lot of these guys didn't love Jesus. They weren't disciples of Christ. They weren't following of Jesus. Yet, before every game, guess what we did? 
We prayed the Lord's Prayer until I became a captain and we ended that. Because I thought, what, what are we doing? We're just going to say this prayer as some kind of mantra, some kind of ritual, some kind of throwaway prayer that God, like God's going to be honored and make us play basketball better or something? You see, a lot of those guys on their team didn't understand the seriousness of the disciples' prayer. And so I, I have to ask myself, and I think we have to ask ourselves, are we serious about this kind of praying? Are we serious about this kind of discipleship? Is this what we want in our lives? Is this what we want on the earth? And if we are, then let's get busy praying like this. Let's get busy asking God, Lord, we want your name to steamed. We want your kingdom to come. And we want to obey your will as a means to accomplish that. So God, work in me. Change my mind, change my life, help me to, to live as I should.